Welcome to the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Welcome to the Circular Economy show podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, where we develop and promote the idea of a circular economy, engage key stakeholders around the topic and mobilise system solutions to make it happen. My name is Seb and it's my pleasure to introduce this episode of the podcast. In this episode, we are sharing an extended version of one of the conversations that took place in our summit, which was broadcast in June. The summit explored the circular economy's role in tackling climate change, the role of growth in this new model, and how we make system change happen. If you watch the summit, you will have seen the 10-minute segment featuring Wolfgang Blau in conversation with Ella MacArthur. It was a tasty conversation, but actually it was a cut of a longer conversation, and this is the full edition So you'll be hearing the impact of COVID on the circular economy. Who are the losers in this transition? What are the risks? Who pays? What's the impact on climate, on biodiversity? And are we supporting the leaders of this transition enough? We hope you enjoy it. We are in year two of this pandemic. And I was wondering on my way here, Has this pandemic slowed down the cause of the circular economy or has it maybe also in some ways accelerated our understanding of at least the need for a circular economy? I think it's a two-pronged answer, actually. I think there are evident ways that the circular economy has been slowed down by the pandemic. The need for PPE, the single-use plastics, there's definitely been a, a significant increase in that space and rightly so in many ways to to combat what we've been going through. But at the same time, I think there's been this massive rethink. People have stopped. People have reflected in a way that has been almost forced on us. And that's people from individuals right through to senior politicians. And I think there's been this real focus on when we build back after this pandemic, because we will be restructuring things, things have changed probably forever, What do we focus on? And there, there's been a significant increase, I believe, in circular economy activity. Ursula von der Leyen has been saying the circular economy is part of the rebuilding back for Europe post-pandemic. You know, this is what we need to aim for. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what do we want to grow? You know, what are we trying to build back post-pandemic? And I think circular economy gives that answer and it's restorative, it's regenerative. It's about moving away from that extractive value to one around creating value. And I think that's where the conversation needs to be. In the United States, but also in Europe, we see these Green Deal type packages that are bigger than the 2008 uh, financial crisis stimulus packages are much bigger than the Marshall Plan even. Is the theme of the circular economy prominent enough in these big Green New Deal policy packages? I think from the foundation's perspective, the circular economy can never be prominent enough. But we've seen very significant moves from high-level leaders like Ursula von der Leyen saying that this is absolutely part of it. So would we like to see more? Yes, absolutely. Do we need more? Yes, absolutely. But I think the the conversation is deepening, but the understanding needs to deepen. The understanding of circular economy needs to be deepened. People really need to get this as a restorative, regenerative economic system change, not just a replacement of a certain material so that it can be recycled, for example. So I think though the circular economy is there, Within the stimulus packages, it is being discussed. It needs to be broader and it needs to be understood for what it truly is, which is that systemic change right across the economy. Let me ask you a, a, 
a dicey question. Who are the losers of a circular economy? Who, Who will lose from that transition to a circular economy? Or, or is everybody winning from it? I think with every transition, there are winners and losers. But I think you have to take a step back and you have to say, business as usual does not work. Everybody loses if we continue with business as usual. We have an extractive economy. We rely on the race to the bottom. So if you're a company manufacturing a product, you generally compete on price. At the very high end, it's quality, but often it's price. Can you produce this for, more, for, for less money? Can you make more profit? That's a race to the bottom. That's never going to work in the long term. That's about extracting every little bit of value that we can on the way to the bottom. We need to turn that on its head so that you have this generation of value whereby you're racing to the top. So you're competing on price, but in a different way. You build a circular model, you can offer that for less money. That's a very different price parity rather than trying to race to the bottom, trying to produce the cheapest product. So those cheap products fall off the end of the production line within a linear system. But within a circular economy, you're building a better product that's restorative, regenerative, the materials go back in, the system changes, then you can compete on price. And we're not there yet. At the moment, now often it's, it's high end and it's costly to shift to some of those models. But we need to look at the entire system and change the whole system so that then those circular models compete on price. So yes, there will be losers. Those that stick with the linear system in the race to the bottom, they will be losers. But those that rethink their model, that will be where the winners lie. Obviously, I'm a great supporter of, of the Alan MacArthur Foundation being a trustee uh, and, and not only believe in the idea of a circular economy, but trust also in the science I have seen. I wonder, though, if we are not talking bluntly enough about the risk of transitioning to circular models for the individual corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, as an, as an economy as a whole, the numbers add up like you said, but that doesn't mean that for the individual company to reset their supply chain, to retrain their staff or even rehire where retraining is not realistic, those are significant investment risks. And it's not a given just because circular economy makes sense as a whole that it will work out for that individual company. So the question then for me is, is not whether the concept is plausible as a whole, but who finances the risk of that transition? That's a really interesting and good question. And it's a conversation we've been having with companies for the last decade. Um, I think everybody can see that the circular model can run in the long term and the linear can't. But there's the question of when do I jump? When I jump, how far do I jump? How much do I invest? You know, Renault's been one of the companies we work with right from the beginning. I remember them investing billions in the EVs and everyone said, you're crazy, EVs aren't the future. You know, now look, I think it's easy to, to question change at the beginning, but very um, insightful to look back and see how quickly that change has actually really happened. Without question, there's a cost to a transition to a circular economy, but you have to weigh that up against the risk of staying with the linear economy. If linear doesn't work, then what does? It's circular. So how do you transition? You can't drop everything and be circular tomorrow because obviously your company won't have any income and it, and it won't be able to function. So there's got to be that transition period. There is a cost to that, but you have to look in the long term. The investors have to understand that this is a, this is a longer term 
view. The investors have to realise that linear doesn't work in the long term, and there is that time when you have to move forwards. But with the incumbents, it takes time. You know, if you're a, a, a big organisation that's been running a linear system for many, many years, that'll take longer than a new startup that comes up with an amazing idea and, you know, within a few years becomes a billion-dollar company. There are many examples of that. You know, seizing that opportunity and then making that happen. And I think the winners will be that mix of the incumbents who really take this on and those startups who grow incredibly quickly with an idea from nowhere because they, they don't have the baggage of that linear system around them. A couple of years ago, um, I interviewed the CEO of one of the world's largest textile companies, Shirtmakers, and we spoke about the circular economy. And I, I asked him, who, who will pay for this? Because inevitably, your T-shirts will cost more to manufacture. And I made a mistake because he said, no, 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 it won't. It, it all just pays for itself. Uh, but in hindsight, I think there really are four ways of paying that transition of resetting your supply chain, at least the investment in the short and midterm before it starts paying for itself, hopefully. Either I make the product more expensive, that means limited adoption of that more valuable product. Um, I try to push prices down in my supply chain, unlikely, especially now after this pandemic or in the midst of this pandemic when so many companies already have optimized their margins. Um, the risk gets paid by the taxpayer mm -hmm. through policy, or the company is fine with a smaller margin for many years probably, which of course, if it's a publicly traded company, is an issue with shareholders. Yeah. Like you said, short-term versus long-term. And, and so often you see CEOs trying to argue in the long-term interest of a company only for the shareholders to move in and say, no, we're interested in the short-term. And I, I wonder again that the, the concept of the circular economy is proven. Shouldn't most of the emphasis now go into these implementation risks and into the policy narratives to make it happen? I think there's no question that policy plays a, a very important part in this. You know, in our conversations we've been having now for many years with the European Commission, when businesses want to move, if there's a level playing field created by policy, it makes that transition easier. It makes that transition more straightforward and it makes that company more investable through that transition because the policy is clear. If you're an outlier trying to do something phenomenal, that's a, 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 a concerning but brave place to be. And some who do that will be absolute winners, but not all. So I think the policy plays a really important role, but there's also the role of the consumer. And we've seen that through the work we've been doing on plastic packaging. Suddenly, you know, post some of our reports and, and other um, uh, programs and articles around the, the subject of plastic pollution, suddenly there is a massive wave that really concerns the FMCG companies from the public saying this is not okay. Now, that in itself is a shareholder risk. That in itself is highlighting this linear system that, that is absolutely not destined to run in the long term. So there are pressures in many areas. And if you can get that consortia, as we have with the plastics mm -hmm. packaging sector, in agreement, this is where they're moving to. That makes it much clearer for the policymakers to then um, bring policy forward to help that transition, which then helps the investors to invest in that transition because everyone has this common, the common direction. You know, what we've seen in the past is many of these companies have had, you know, 100 innovations in 100 directions which don't add up to a solution, whereby it is a, you know, you go off over here or you go off over here, all with absolutely the best intentions, but that won't change the system. To change the system, you need everyone to agree this is where we're moving towards. It's these materials. It's, it's this distribution model. It's working towards getting products to people in a different way. Then you have a very different 
conversation with policymakers, you have a different conversation with your consumers, and that helps the whole system to shift, whereby you don't have those outliers going off on their own and, and, and putting themselves in that very vulnerable position. The foundation speaks with many of the world's largest corporations. I sometimes wonder what the role is of the public, um, every citizen in a country, to really understand the notion of a circular economy, to then also support the politicians trying to shoulder some of the cost from a policy side. How important is public, general public education uh, for the foundation next to its direct work with some of the world's most influential corporations? It's another really interesting question, and it's one that we've spent many, many hours discussing. You know, are we a consumer-facing organisation? There is obviously part of the circular economy which is consumer-facing. But right now, as an individual, we can't all act and change the system because the system isn't set up to enable that shift. The system has to change. You have to be able to get those products of service. You have to be able to buy your products in a packaging which is circular or distributed through a different distribution model that doesn't involve using pack packaging in that way. This all has to happen. So the majority of our activity is focused on changing that system, on that system redesign, on that shift from extractive value to the regenerative the creation of value effectively. So that in itself is a journey and it's a, it's a different point of view. But the consumer has a massive role to play here. You know, as we touched on with FMCG, you know, the, the faster moving consumer goods. So they are in fear of people pressure saying, we're not buying that anymore because look at the packaging it sits within. It's creating, you know, billions of dollars of, of um, infrastructure failings in emerging markets. You know, we simply can't recover this material. A sachet, a plastic sachet in Indonesia cannot be fed into a system because there is no system to, to, to cycle it, neither here. So there is massive pressure on those organizations to build that system that works. So yes, the consumer has a role to play and can absolutely help to steer that ship. But the consumer alone can't change the system because the system has to change to enable the consumers to follow. What motivates corporations to change when you look at that spectrum between doomsday scenarios if you don't you will eventually be out of business and the other end maybe if you do this you will have greater profits than ever before my experience in working with consultancies the large global consultancies in various multinational transformation programs i ran was that the consultancies come into the building and ask, so what's, what's the theory of change or what's the burning platform, mm. to use that buzzword. And over the years, if I have learned one thing, it's that the burning platform narrative doesn't work mm. as a motivator of change. And I really like that about the foundation, how much we emphasize what, what we all can win, not only monetarily, but also socially and culturally from that transition. Is there a point, though, sometimes, especially with this accelerating climate crisis, to also point out the scenarios that are likely if we don't make this transition a bit more forcefully? I think there is always, you, you have to state the reason to change. People don't like change. People generally don't like change. Yeah. Um, some circular um, products arrive because they're cheaper. People aren't shifting because they understand the circular economy in that context. Right. They're shifting because they get a product for, be, for, for it's a better value. They pay less, they get a product which is of the same or better quality. Uh, that product, they don't have to pay tax when they buy, they don't have to own all the materials within the product when they have it, and they don't have to pay tax again when they throw it away because ultimately it's designed to be thrown away because it sits within that linear system. So some people shift because it's just a better 
offer. That is a great example of a system change whereby people aren't pushed by the burning platform, but they think, oh, I'm going to do this because I get, why would I not? This just makes sense. I think from the foundation's perspective, that's where we need to be. Now, that person's made that choice for financial reasons. It happens that it's a much better product, it's a circular system, and it's the way forward for the economy in the long term. If you're the company that produces that product and changes the business model to enable people to have access to that product, why would you do it? I think partly you would do that because you believe that the linear system can't run in the long term, or you understand that, it's common sense, you have finite materials, you have a growing world population. That would be one burning platform position to push from. But also, when you start to look at the value created by that circular system, they are no longer tied to buying a raw material, making the best they can out of it, and then selling it to make more money. That's the race to the bottom. How can you make a bit more profit when you're trying to squeeze every last bit of value out of that material you take from the ground? That's, that can never run, as we know, in the long term. So what can be more... What can create more value for the organisation, whereby you can keep your materials flowing? You know they're going to come back because they're within a system that cycles them. You're building this whole infrastructure around your business that enables your business to run in the long term. If you're in the agribusiness, we're talking about having the ability to change the agricultural production method across the world, if you're some of the biggest companies, and that's about creating biodiversity. That's about uh, regenerative agriculture. That's about the topsoil being uh, rebuilt rather than degraded. That's a very different message as a chief executive to the people who are buying your product. You buy this, this product, the world will be a better place. We're not in that space at the moment. There's a great positive narrative around that. And mm -hmm. I totally agree with your point of, do we start with a burning platform? Well, I did personally. I think many of us have been on a journey in this space. I tried to change everything I could in my life. And I suddenly realized that A, I was lucky enough to be able to do that, most aren't. And B, even if everyone could do what I'd done, it still didn't add up to a solution because the system doesn't work. The system is linear. Circular economy has to become business as usual. Then everyone gets that, the benefits of it. Everybody becomes part of that change because the way we design products, we have access to products, the way the economy runs is restorative and regenerative. It makes the world a better place. It enhances biodiversity. It's a great place to be. And then everyone comes along with it because it's business as usual. That's where we have to get to. Alan, as you know, I'm taking a year off from management to study the climate crisis full-time. I do that at Oxford University, especially the role of journalism in the climate crisis. And of course, sample size one, these are my observations, so take it with a grain of salt. But what I believe I'm seeing now, months later, is that there is a fantastic discussion taking place in economic circles and in policy circles about the circular economy. But when I then go back to the climate movement and climate policy circles and the preparations for COP26 in Glasgow, the word circular economy, I think, doesn't show up often enough. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a bit of a disconnect. Would you agree with that observation? I think in some circles, yes. In other circles, less. Um, we've definitely seen the connection between circular economy and the climate crisis at high level. But is it in the discussion enough? Probably not. It's one of the reasons we produced our report three years ago, looking at the link between the circular economy and climate, looking at how we can step our way out of the climate crisis through switching to renewables, through changing transportation. Um, how much can we achieve of our 1.5 degree target through doing that? The answer is about half, just over half. But even if we can do that absolutely amazingly, which is an enormous challenge in its own right, we're not going to reach the 1.5 degree target. It's, it's, it, it won't be possible. When we looked at 
applying circularity to how we make products, how we grow food, the materials and the embodied energy that sits within them, if we start to apply circularity to that, and we take, for example, and we did just five products, it was steel, aluminium, cement, um, steel, aluminium, cement, plastic packaging and food systems, and we apply circularity to those five products, we can half the remaining 45% of, of emissions just through those five things. So actually, we can't achieve our climate targets without a circular economy. We have to look at how we make products, how products sit with an economy, how we get products to people. That has an enormous effect on the amount of energy that's needed for the economy to run in the long term. And that is definitely something that needs to be discussed at much greater depth at COP26. You just mentioned various industries that need to be completely rethought, re-engineered, re-envisioned as far as their carbon footprint goes or their climate footprint. Uh, are there specific industries we should look at that, that play a pioneer role? I think there are. Um, there are shining lights, though, in pretty much every sector. There are small companies who've appeared from seemingly nowhere and grown incredibly quickly all over the economy. So it's by no means only in one place. I think you know, it could be a coating for fresh products that negates the need for packaging. It could be um, a way to get you know, huge industrial components to a company that needs them. There are many examples. I think perhaps where it's most advanced is B2B because it's easier to have that relationship. It's easier to provide a, a product of service. With that, that it's less fragmented as, as B2C. But I do think that there are those examples all over of circular economy really working, of really being out there, of these companies coming from nowhere and becoming you know, billion-dollar companies within you know, a handful of years. That shows there is growth in that area. That shows there is new thinking, not only required, but, but benefiting from the, sh the need to shift to a different economic model. Let's talk about leadership. Changing an organization of course, uh, involves an entire leadership team and in the end, the entire company. But it really depends on, on the leader many times, on the person that puts their reputation on the line to, to, to make this transition and to defend it to boards and shareholders and what have you. One of the, we sometimes call it dirty little secrets of, of, of transformation is that the leader who starts a transformation often is not the leader that oversees it to the end, if there ever is an end, but not even the first two or three chapters of it. Are we thinking hard enough about what this transition that we are arguing for requires from the individual leaders and how to support them? I think it does put pressure on leaders, but it's also not something that can only be regarded as a pressure. It's also a gift in a way. It's about restructuring a business so it can run in the long term. It's about making the employees have more secure jobs in the long term. I think when you ask those questions, you have to weigh up circular versus linear. You cannot have that circular conversation without saying business as usual just doesn't work. What's the risk of trying to squeeze a little bit more out of the way that we do things now? It's that race to the bottom of the linear economy. We know that can't run in the long term. Timing, I'm sure, has a, has a role to play. And the communication of what you're achieving throughout your business is not an easy task. You know, the straight line to the circle, everybody gets. That's quite straightforward. But when you start to look into how do you play that out through the business? How do you finance the change through, through the business? How do you restructure the accounts of the business when you're not selling things, but you're having things sitting on your books? There are many, many challenges evident in that switch to circularity. But you have to ask that question how does business as usual look? If I'm a CEO who tries to hang on to the way things are working at the moment, what's the risk in that? 
And I think that's a huge risk, especially as we've seen brittle supply chains through the COVID pandemic, especially as we've seen you know, huge businesses really struggling through the COVID pandemic. We've realised we can change quickly. Almost overnight is what we've seen. We need to really reflect on when we change, what are we changing to? There is inevitable change going to happen. Look at the stranded assets with you know, coal and gas. Ten years ago, that was only the beginning of a conversation. Now, it's clear, it's obvious. It's, it's been a massive shift in you know, investors' mindsets, in shareholders' mindsets, in pension companies' mindsets, in, in you know, finance companies' mindsets. This has been a huge shift. So the, inevitably, change will happen. But it's about communicating that change in the right way within an organization. I would still argue that to make substantial change in your organization as a leader, if you're not in your very last chapter and only have a few more years before retirement and have proven yourself and can really take massive risks. But, but before then, if you're in, in, in an early phase of your career, you almost need to have a gladiator mindset as far as your appetite for risk has to go in, in, in risking a complete reset of your organization in culture, incentives, supply chain, business model, hiring policies, everything, while there is no proof. And while to continue as is, at least for another three to five years, average tenor of a CEO, probably being less than that, would be safer. But why do you say there is no proof? Because it needs to be proven for your specific company. In the studies that we've been looking at, and we've been working with some of the best management consultants in the world on this, we've looked at different sectors, we've looked at the economic rationale, yes, in the longer term, for these sectors around circularity. Um, and there are case studies in there of companies who've done this and been very successful. So I think there is proof out there as to that shift. I, I fully agree with you that it's a risk for that individual to put all their eggs in one basket. Um, but there is also the risk to continuing along that linear system. Oh, I completely agree. And, I completely agree. And I think one thing that's absolutely vital in this is that, you know, we talk about systemic change. There are some companies who've been able to completely rethink themselves and provide their product as a service, especially in the B2B space, actually. They've done that almost alone. They've been able to do that almost alone because they have big customers, they have big equipment, it makes sense, everyone is happy, that shift has happened. Now, those CEOs are winners very much winners. They've created this massive transition, but it makes sense. Everybody's followed suit and that's happened. That's B2B. B2C is more complex. And I think that's why it's so important that systemic change has different elements within it. It has the consumer with it, but most importantly, it also has policy within it. If policy agrees that we need to build back better, we need to look at what growth for the future looks like. We need to understand what good growth is compared to extracting a little bit of extra growth out of that race to the bottom of the linear system. That's a very different conversation. So what is good growth? How do we incentivize good growth? Then you end up with the policy following suit. You end up with finance following suit because of the policy set that makes it much easier for that company to shift towards that circular regenerative system. Then you end up with a less vulnerable place for that chief exec who is in that B2C, um, you know, very high volume, for example, very low value material like plastic packaging. That's a hard shift to make. But once you get momentum, once you get the biggest players in the world shifting in that direction, once you get policy following, then actually being that outlier with comrades around you, even if they're your biggest competitor, enables that shift to happen globally. And just to be clear, I'm, I'm all for taking risks. I, I have taken huge risks myself and, and, and succeeded, thankfully. And luckily, I'm sure there's always a, an element of luck I only remember that all the business literature, most of the leadership literature did not prepare me in various companies for the fact that your biggest battles are to be fought internally, not with your suppliers or clients or the press. It's internally because it's, it's a culture change, which is always the hardest thing to achieve. 
I want to change subject uh, uh, slightly over to biodiversity. That was another thing I've observed is many times now when I say something publicly about climate change, the initial response is, but what about biodiversity? As if those were two mutually exclusive topics. Have you observed that as well? And how important is the theme of biodiversity in the work of the foundation currently? Biodiversity is absolutely vital to our very existence on this planet. And I think one of the challenges that I've reflected on over the last 10 years, 15 years in this space is that conversations are too siloed. It's a conversation around climate. It's a conversation around biodiversity. Same within a business. We're going to design something over here which is completely circular, but actually if we don't get it to people in a different way so we can get it back, we've totally wasted our time on design. You can't do one without the other. You have to change the system. And I think that's the need for systemic change is absolutely vital globally. The circular economy is that systemic change. It's shifting from linear to circular. And you have to tie all the pieces together. If we have an increased level of climate change, biodiversity suffers hugely. It already is. That's a side of the way we farm, the way we extract material from woodlands to the point there is no woodland and we end up with palm oil. You know, we've, we've, we're, we're making decisions here without looking over here or here without here. So what fascinates me as a circular economy is the fact that you work out what the goal looks like. You say, so what does success look like? Well, actually, this is successful. If we can build a restorative, regenerative economy that materials feed back into the system, we can decouple economic growth from resource constraints. When you build that system, you're looking at how you can make the world a better place, not a worse place. When you look at regenerative agriculture, you're making the soil better, not worse. When you look at regenerating natural systems, you're looking at how you can not cut down more forest to create uh, a crop, which may be regenerative when you have something of such value over here. If we can increase the value of our soil, if we can increase the biodiversity within our farms, then there's much less biodiversity pressure. And in fact, we can make the world a better place. So when you look at some of the shifts that we looked into for the climate report, when you look at food systems, for example, when you start to apply circularity to food systems, yes, it has a massive climate change implication in a, in a positive sense because you're cutting carbon emissions massively. But that's because you're regenerating the soil. That's because you're increasing biodiversity. That's because you're making the world a better place. Of course that cuts carbon emissions because we know extractive consumptive, you know, that race to the bottom doesn't work for carbon emissions because you're trying to get every last bit of value out of the oil, out of the coal, out of the, you know, the material that you're turning into the plastic. It's, it's, that's not how we have to think. We have to think, how do we make the world a better place? How do we generate natural systems? How do we regenerate farms? How do we build a, a company that provides automotive services to people without take, extracting materials and trying to sell as many cars as possible for as little money as possible? That's never going to work in the long term. So you have to change your thinking on its head. And then by its very definition, climate and biodiversity and industry is all linked. You have this system. The system, you, you can't disconnect it. You can't have a conversation in a silo. It's a system that has to change. And you have to have that, you know, through the macroscope, looking at the big system. And then, of course, go down to the microscope to find the new material that will replace something or the different distribution model over here or the different provision of a service over here. But then you have to go back out. You have to understand that little picture and then the big picture. Otherwise, you go down that little rabbit hole and you stay down there and you suddenly realise that what you're trying to achieve is, is impossible. Alan, thank you very much. Thank you, Wolfgang. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that was provoking and maybe a little bit spicy for you. I'll be taking away Ellen's point that yes, there is risk in the transition, 
but there's also risk in not making the transition. In fact, we know that business as usual can't work in the long term. Do subscribe to our podcast to get notified every time we publish a new episode. Like, rate and share on whichever channel you're listening to this on. All those good things. And if you missed the original broadcast of the summit, you can still find those on our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation Circular Economy Podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.